Hello and welcome to Ice Age Prep Reads, Season 3, where I am reading Stone of Knowledge, Seed of Plenty. This is Chapter 7, Mystery Mounds of North America. I am reading this off of scribd.com, S-C-R-I-B-D.com, and um, if you don't have a copy of this book, I recommend getting one, either a PDF version or physical copy, as there are numerous illustrations and photos that really make the richness of the book uh, that much more. So, Chapter 7, Mystery Mounds of North America. The chief role of American Indian religion was to help the crops grow better. Aki Holtkrantz. So here I am in sub-zero wind chill, standing atop a huge earthen mound at Cahokia, Illinois. To properly make magnometer readings, I repeatedly have to stand completely still for several minutes at a stretch. My body begins to rebel, I shiver from the cold, and two or three toes are frozen stiff. What in the world am I doing here? To answer that question, we must go back to the times when corn farming spread northwards from Mesoamerican culture, spreading certain other aspects of these cultures with it. Throughout the middle portion of the United States, thousands of Native American earthen mounds still stand, hugging their histories close to their hearts. I was trying to tease out these histories, and frostbite nearly cut my attempt short. The Mound Builders About 2,400 years ago, in present-day Ohio, a group of hunters and primitive farmers that we today call the Adena began to heap up earth into mounds. The Adena were not a tribe, but part of a culture that embraced many tribes in the area. Several centuries later, they were succeeded by the people of the Hopewell culture, Hopewell culture, who were accomplished farmers. Their influence reached down the full length of the Ohio and Mississippi rivers. The center of the early Adena and Hopewell mound building was around the modern town of Chillicothe, Ohio. United States Geological Survey magnetic maps show that the town and its surroundings lie between two large regions of powerful magnetic fields to the north and south. Running east and west between these areas is Paint Creek, along which countless mounds and earthworks were erected. Almost none were placed further north or south outside these magnetic transition zones. In Hopewell Culture National Historical Park in Chillicothe, a few dozen mounds survive on the floodplain of Paint Creek. Every mound over six or eight feet high was placed on a single magnetic anomaly strong enough to be detected by our magnometers. The mounds are round with one exception where there had been a line of positive magnetic anomalies in the ground. The Hopewell builders erected a linear mound, whose ridge runs across all the anomalies. The largest group of these mounds is surrounded by a hinge-like ditch. Someone had sought out spots with powerful magnetic anomalies and decided to build mounds here. Many Hopewell and Adina sites were anything but modest piles of dirt. Some stood several stories high and contained hundreds of thousands of cubic feet of earth all laboriously heaped up by hand. Archaeological excavations show that these structures were built by people scraping earth into baskets that would be carried on their back up to the site, up the existing mound, on top of which it was dumped, repeating the process endlessly. 
Mound building in North America was brought to its zenith circa 800 to 1400 AD by the Mississippian culture, named for the large, huge river that was the center of their activity. During a period of population density that was unparalleled in pre-Columbian North America, the Mississippians built the largest earthen mounds the country has ever seen. At their great center in Cahokia, Illinois, they raised a giant flat-topped pyramid, rivaling in volume the Great Pyramid of Giza in Egypt, as well as a few dozen smaller mounds. For several hundred years, Cahokia was the most spectacular settlement north of Mexico. At its peak, about 1300 AD, it was home to 30,000 people, exceeding the population of London at the time. Not until Philadelphia around 1800 AD did the American city grow larger. Did an American city grow larger? At least 383 other villages of this culture bordered the Mississippi River between the Ohio and Red Rivers, and thousands of others spread up and down its tributary streams as far afield as the Missouri River in South Dakota. Though a few mounds contained some skeletons, most had nothing to do with burial. Yet these mind-boggling laborious creations were built in the hundreds throughout this region by different tribes using different languages. Incredibly, in most cases the builders did not even use the dirt closest to the mound. They usually went some distance for special clays that were then applied in layers one at a time. When you consider that these local populations usually numbered no more than a few hundred thousand people, what would compel them to dedicate hundreds of thousands of man-hours of back-breaking work to haul clays from a distance only to dump them out and pile them up? What made these mounds worth such staggering effort? Like the Adena, the Mississippian culture was not one tribe, but a way of life that included many tribes. One characteristic of the Mississippian culture was the intensive farming methods imported from Mesoamerica. For example, growing two crops of 120-day corn per year in the same field. Even today, no farmer double crops like this unless there is a serious need to get more food from the land. For one thing, there are substantial risks to double cropping. If one of the plantings experiences unusually cool weather, then those plants will take longer to reach harvest maturity posing the risk the reduced number of days now left for the second planting to mature by may be insufficient. Even today, this is not an uncommon experience for double croppers, and the result is that the second planting does not mature before winter and the entire crop is lost. Were the mounds partially built for this very reason? Were they constructed in a way that would improve the seed in the same manner as is accomplished by the modern electron showers that we discussed in chapter 2? If this were so, the Mississippian crops would have matured sooner, making it more likely that both 120-day corn crops would could reach full maturity. As we know from the previous chapter in our experiments with these energies in the New England rock chambers, the additional value would be that both crops would produce substantially higher yields. Mounds, Electricity, and Fertility Careful surveys with our magnometer at 17 mounds showed a persistent connective connection to positive magnetic anomalies, and in every case the readings were dramatically higher at the top of the mound. The sides might also give higher readings than the surrounding flat ground, which showed no magnetic anomalies, but the highest readings were invariably at the highest point. And the larger the mound, the bigger the difference. 
archaeological excavations had shown that the mound itself was not magnetic, so it had to be the ground under the mound. The creators had decided to build the mound directly on a magnetic anomaly. Our surveys of the electric charge in the air above the larger mounds produced readings that were some of the highest we had ever encountered in nature. Both these and the magnetic readings varied wildly different between nighttime and midday. Given all this data, it seems clear that the building of these mounds probably had something to do with the electromagnetic energy. We had brought a set of ground electrodes to detect telluric currents in the Earth. Such ground currents are normally quite steady, but at the mounds they were anything but. Here they sometimes pulsed in through in rough unison with the magnetic and airborne electrostatic changes in a way that was consistent with known physics, just not normally seen. The river connection is relevant. The vast majority of major Native American mountains are located on high ground bordering a river. <clears throat> Granted, the rivers were the highways, but English henges, as we'll see in Chapter 9, were located in the same types of locations. Furthermore, both the American and English builders ran avenues lined by ditches from water's edge to the mound, for reasons that we shall revisit. The famous Serpent Mound in Ohio is a quarter-mile-long embankment built by Native Americans in the shape of a writhing snake. Long credited to the Adena, circa 500 BC, recent carbon-14 dating has proven that this was actually engineered by the late master mound builders, the Mississippians, around 1070 AD. This combination got our attention because in Mississippian culture, the snakes symbolized fertility. In fact, in their mythology, the serpent was considered the source of all plant life. A frequently used symbol of fertility was that of a serpent rising out of the ground in the form of a plant. On our first visit to the serpent mound, we encountered dramatic readings. Heavy gusts of wind charged to 1,000 volts per inch were blowing in from the northeast in the directions of other native mounds. This might sound fatal, but the current is so low that it has very little impact on people. We thought, though, that it might have an impact on seeds. On the side of the serpent mound, we placed seeds in porous cotton gauze bags, but were disappointed. While the seeds showed the same type of improvements that we had associated with New England rock chambers, the differences were small. The seeds left on the ground mound grew only 8% faster than the control seeds. Were we missing something? In the mythologies of mound-building cultures throughout Mesoamerica and the U.S., man-made rock chambers and natural caves were linked with mounds, fertility, corn seeds, water, and one other ingredient, lightning. We had worked with all of these factors but the last. One day at the 64-foot-tall Grave Creek Mound in West Virginia, after, passing, after the passing of a thunderstorm, the telluric currents reached an astonishing 3 volts per kilometer, the highest we had ever recorded anywhere. In the flat ground surrounding the mound, the currents were not even near that level. Then, in August 1996, we brought seeds of corn and beans to the serpent mound on a day when a thunderstorm struck. There was a certain poetry to this when you consider that in Mayan culture, like the classic Popol Vuh, and also among Mayan ethnic groups today, the serpent symbolizes lightning, while in the Mississippian mound-building culture, it represents fertility. 
At three different locations on the writhing flanks of the mound, we placed bags of three different types of seed for differing lengths of time. The thunderstorm moved in, and ultimately lightning got to within one or two miles of the mound. During its two-hour approach, something amazing was happening. From the time we began taking readings on our magnometer at 2.06 p.m., the readings plunged. Starting at a normal fair weather level, the magnometer readings dropped several times further than we had ever measured before anywhere. This drama continued as the lightning got closer. In near disbelief, we installed a new battery, but that didn't make any difference. Something radical was happening in the magnetic field. Ultimately, we had to cease measuring the re and retrieve the last of the seeds when the town pours began at 3.57 p.m. There was no doubt that these dramatic magnetic fluctuations were produced by powerful electric currents streaming through the bluff under the Serpent Mound. Thunderstorms are known to induce such currents in the earth. Without them, lightning would never strike. These telluric currents alter the local magnetic field by producing a magnetic field of their own. If the new field is, supposed, is opposed to the normal one, it will weaken it and thereby lower magnometer readings. It was obvious that beneath the Serpent Mound, the telluric currents were coursing through the 90-foot bluff that sticks out into the valley like a peninsula. It is composed of solid dolomite, a particularly electrically conductive form of limestone with a high content of magnesium. We knew that the terrain was unusual. Flanked by two streams, the Serpent Mound sits within a strange geological structure called a crypto-explosion crater. Millions of years ago, a five-mile-wide bowl was carved out of the earth here by a massive explosion. The entire center of the crater is one large negative magnetic anomaly. Near the center sits the Dolomite Bluff, which was artificially flattened by the mound builders, who left only a thin covering of soil atop the Dolomite. Then the serpent was laid down with alternating layers of clay carried up 90 feet from the stream beds below. On one side of this bluff is a small cave, located just below the serpent's head. With the cave, the mound, the serpent, the seed, and lightning, we now had all of the elements of mound builder fertility, imagery, presence in a real, physical form. What happened to the seeds placed in the mound left no doubt at all that the fertility of Maya myth was also present in physical form. As shown in Figure 12, the seeds placed on the mound grew dramatically faster and more uniformly than the control lots kept in our car near the mound or those left behind in the lab. The differences were statistically significant. The improved growth closely correlated with the changing telluric ground currents and their magnetic fields. The least growth improvement was seen in the seeds placed on the serpent mound before the electromagnetic changes got very large. The greatest growth increases were attained in the seeds placed on the side of the serpent at the height of the electrical and magnetic disturbance, growth improvements similar to our results atop the Lost World Pyramid, Chapter 4. The Trade Deficit Dr. Brad Lepper is an Ohio boy who rose to the top of his field, pursuing the question that had fascinated him since childhood. How did the Hopewell Mound builders rise from the scattering of obscure tribes circa 800 AD to create a high civilization east of the Mississippi? It wasn't just the mounds. 
They also dug ditches that bear a striking resemblance to the hinges of England. In Ohio, these ditches were often created in geometric patterns, enclosing dozens of acres and, as we shall see, concentric, concentrating electric ground currents. <clears throat> how did the Hopewell do this? And how did they become wealthy beyond any others who came before them? Today, Dr. Lepper is the state archaeologist of Ohio. The work that put him in this position includes papers published in peer-reviewed journals citing a fundamental puzzle. The Hopewell wealth shows up in grave goods and excavations in the form of luxury items such as mica from the Rocky Mountains, copper from northern Michigan, seashells from the Gulf of Mexico, and more. But try as he might, Dr. Lepper could not find what the Hopewell themselves exported to pay for these items. Well, they did make fine flint hose that have turned up in archaeological sites up to 100 miles away, but not in sufficient quantities to have counterbalanced the expensive imported items. There is a missing factor here, he told us. This reminded us of a similar statement made by two Olmec archaeologists. For the Hopewell, as for the Olmec, the only thing they seemed to possess that the others did not were mounds. Giza in dirt. This missing factor would reach its zenith circa 1000 AD in the earlier mentioned trans-tribal culture called the Mississippian, whose center was at Cahokia, Illinois, just across from the Mississippi from present-day St. Louis. I went there with our instruments determined to get some answers. However, I arrived in winter, and soon come to wish I hadn't. Many of the electromagnetic forces discussed in this book are stronger in warmer weather. The rock chambers described in Chapter 6 often show no charge separation and no pulsing in temperatures below freezing. The abilities of other factors involving interactions of chalk and limestone with water are also temperature dependent. However, magnetic anomalies are usually permanent and can be measured any time of the year. In the Hopewell culture, the bigger the magnetic anomaly, the larger they would build the mound above it. So trudging through several inches of snow in Cahokia State Park, I definitely had high expectations of what would pop up in our magnometer. Facing a bitter winter wind, I struggled to the top of the biggest earthen mound in the world, the so-called Monk's Mound, at 22 million cubic feet having a volume almost equal to that of the Khufu Pyramid in Egypt. This massive mound rises 100 feet above the Illinois Plain. Standing up here in the snows, exploring a new frontier of knowledge, I gazed across the river to St. Louis and its magnificent arch, a memorial to the pioneers who went west from here to explore and inhabit a different frontier. The Magnetic Pyramid Grid So what did I find atop this huge mound? Nothing. All across the top, the magnometer readings were the same. To add insults to injury, I encountered an unexpected difficulty on the fourth reading. The LCD readout had frozen and refused to show the numbers. To properly read the magnometer, a person must stand completely still for several minutes. In sub-zero wind chill, the body begins to rebel and I was shivering from the cold. Over the next two and a half days, I developed a routine. Take a reading, stuff the magnometer inside my down jacket against my chest to keep the readout from freezing, walk 100 yards as briskly as possible, stop, unzip down jacket and remove magnometer, try to stand still and not shiver, 
repeat. Hundreds of repetitions later, by the second day, my efforts paid off. A geographic pattern emerged from the readings, one that would bear out and ultimately answer some of the long-asked questions about the mysterious site. Here, dozens of mounds, totaling 60 million cubic feet in volume, were laid down on a magnetic grid. The one square mile that contains the major structures of Cahokia lies at a transition zone between an extensive region of lower magnesium, 54,000 gammas, to the north and west, and a large area of higher magnetism, sorry, so it's lower magnetism and higher magnetism, not magnesium. So, <laughs> extensive region of lower magnetism, 54,000 gammas, to the north and west, and a large area of higher magnetism, 54,400 gammas, to the south and east. Though this difference may sound small as a percentage of the geomagnetic field strength, it is actually a large difference when you are analyzing the Earth's field. This difference makes the entire Cahokia site a conductivity discontinuity. In other words, it is the meeting place of two regions that have differing abilities to conduct electrical ground current. As we have seen, such spots tend to be especially powerful for electromagnetic energies. In Chapter 2, we discuss the principles of induction that changing magnetic field strength will create electric current in anything present that will conduct electricity. The same principle is true for the ground. At dawn, the changing strength of the geomagnetic field generates telluric currents that race through the ground near the surface. Again, nature is rarely simple. These telluric currents do what any electric current does. They generate their own magnetic fields that will reinforce or weaken the geomagnetic field at that spot depending on which way they are polarized. As we have seen in Chapter 2, these natural geological sites called conductivity discontinuities can magnify the daily geomagnetic fluctuations several fold. And since their fluctuations generate electric currents, the normal daily telluric currents at such a spot can be magnified by several fold. Finally, a negatively charged telluric current in the ground will attract positively charged particles and fields in the atmosphere, as we saw atop the oldest Mayan pyramid. Our ancient mound builders repeatedly sought out places with such natural electrical activities. When you have, as at Cahokia, two large zones of differing magnetic field strengths, it normally means that one zone possesses more magnetized iron underground than the other. The ability of the ground to conduct electricity is proportional to its content of, of water and or metals. The wetter or more metallic, the better electric current will travel through it. Cahokia's biggest mound was erected at the edge of a creek. Most of the Hopewell and Mississippian mounds were built near the edge of a floodplain, which would be inundated in spring, just before seeds were planted. Within a flood plane, a zone of magnetic transitions will add fuel to the fire, so to speak, as far as maximizing ground currents. The only thing that will do better is a, th is a thunderstorm. A place worth defending. The Cahokians also built a wood hinge, a 400-foot circle of cedar posts with one post at the center. Sight lines from the center past certain outlier posts correspond to sunrise at the two equinoxes and on summer solstice. But this calendaric device was not located anywhere near a magnetic anomaly. Magnetism was a connection employed only with the mounds. 
From Woodhenge, 54,000 gammas, on the western edge of Cahokia, the geomagnetic reason, re, readings rise as you move east. As depicted in figure 13, every time a reading rose past 54,300 gammas, a flat-topped mound would be present, not just once, but repeatedly in a north-south line. The same is true when you move towards the complex from the north, south, or west. For a century, investigators have been asking why the Cahokia Mounds are on two great axes. In the center of the complex, a north-south line occurs with readings of 54,200 gammas, lower than the 54,300 on the other side of it. This is the central axis of Cahokia, with the largest mounds in the Great Central Plaza. Now, obviously not every piece of ground on the 54,300 gamma frontier is covered with a mound. In fact, the mounds were sited uh, where there's also an additional small individual magnetic anomaly. Whatever was occurring here made the Cahokians rich. Here also, lavish trade goods flown, flowed in from all over North America. Yet the Cahokians had no special resources to exchange in return. There was something about the mound complex, though, that apparently aroused the envy of their neighbors to such a degree that the residents erected the largest fortifications in the history of pre-Columbian North America to protect it. A palisade 20 feet high, made of trees a solid foot thick, was thrown up all the way around the 2.5-mile perimeter. It did not enclose most of the houses or the rich cornfields, but it did protect the mounds, or protected them well. Every 20 paces, the tower jutted out so that archers could shoot down on enemies attacking the walls. The logs themselves were covered by a thick coat of dried clay so that flaming arrows could not ignite them. Apparently, other tribes wanted the mounds badly enough to kill and die for them. When the stockade eventually weakened with decay, the Cahokians would build another, using 20,000 massive trees each time. This happened three times, deforesting the area. Breathing life into relics. Archaeologist Thomas Emerson points out that the people in his field are thought of as dealing with the material parts of an ancient people's life, deducing what they ate and how they worked, nothing about the way they thought. He maintains that the best window into the minds of those long gone lies within the symbolism in their art. Cahokians did make beautiful statues and figurines for themselves. In other areas throughout the country at that time, such figurines mostly dealt with warfare. In what Professor Emerson calls a highly unusual expectation, exception, Cahokia's art concentrates obsessively on one theme, plant fertility. Two famous female figurines unearthed at Cahokia's exemplify this theme. One kneels on ears of corn, while the other bends her farmer's hoe to a serpent which wraps around her and from which vines grow. Authorities agree that this combined motif represents fertility. Were these symbols part of religious rituals at the site? Cahokia was finally abandoned around 1300 AD, probably due to persistent floods from the permanent increases in rainfall about that time. We will never know in detail what went on at that site, despite the artist's depiction on plate 22. Fortunately, however, further downriver in Louisiana, the Natchez tribe of the Mississippian culture continued using mounds right up to the early 1700s, when French colonizers interacted with them. 
The Jesuit priest Father Le Petit wrote back to his superior in 1730 that a temple of wood stood atop the Natchez's earthen pyramid. No farmer, he reported, would think of planting his fields without first presenting the seed with the custom ceremonies in the temple. Excavations have shown that all Mississippian mounds had a thatched roof temple on top. As we shall see later, there are many reasons why these mound top buildings should have experienced the same type of electromagnetic changes as Serpent Mound when a thunderstorm rolled through. However, by having a roof overhead, anyone placing a seed in a Mississippian mound top temple would not have to scramble to remove the seed when downpours arrived. This way, the seed could be left at the place with the most dramatic electromagnetic changes during the peak period of those energies. What was the Mississippian Seed Temple like inside? According to the earliest European visitors to the Natchez who passed through the sea with the DeSoto's expedition in 1540, its outer room contained a constant fire, tended by old men who were executed if they allowed either of the two things to ha- either of two things to happen. If the fire went out, they were dead. They were also killed if they allowed the simmering smoke smoking fire to break out into an open flame. This eternal fire was to have no flame. No one could offer an answer to the early European explorers asking the reason for this. The tribal priest simply said that it had to be this way. You can confirm for yourself at your home barbecue that smoke is one large cloud of negatively electrified air particles or ions. Flame, on the other hand, has very little electric charge to it. The Mississippians desired only the negatively charged type of fire. Since they deliberately left out any chimney or smoke hole in the roof, these charged particles gathered thickly inside. This outer room of the wood temple was one big repository of negative air ions, the same kind as delivered by thunderstorms. The inner sanctum was even more intriguing. It was a clay version of the rock chambers in which we enhanced seeds. Its wattle and daub frame of sticks and cane was covered with mud lined with clay inside then covered over in reed mats. It was round and had a dome roof. There were no windows, and the only entrance was through a door four feet high and three feet wide. Same as with the rock chambers. Combined with the effects of the electrified smoke and the magnetic anomaly in which the mounds were sighted, these structures created conditions similar to what we found in the rock chambers. It appears that the mound builders exposed their seed to the same seed-enhancing energies as in our rock chambers. We therefore note with interest that the crops on Natchez farms were known for being unbelievably lush and fertile. Chamber meets mound. In the state of Mississippi, the Choctaw tribe still tells of their ancestral journey from the west to their current homeland. When they ran out of corn to eat on the long march, the shaman made them stop beside an abandoned Mississippian mound, which they called the... Uh, oh boy, this is I'm, I'm going to butcher this probably. Which they called Naniwayu to plant their last seed and start a new stock of corn. According to this highly detailed and credible account, they only had two years left, and these were two years old. Everyone feared that the corn was dead and would not sprout when planted. 
but when they planted it in the ground besides the great mound, it flourished, replenishing their stock of both food and seed corn. They were sufficiently struck by this phenomenon that they stayed there and made the mound the center of their new homeland. We confirmed that this mound was also built atop a strong magnetic anomaly, spilling beyond the mound from its current form. One monkey summer afternoon at the Nani Wayu State Park, I found dramatic surges in readings during an approaching thunderstorm. Ultimately, I was chased off the mound by bolts that seemed to zero in on it when they began striking. Of all the improvements in seeds that we have seen, the most dramatic changes always seem to occur with low vigor seed, just what the Choctaw had. This has been true both with seed left at ancient sites as well as that treated with modern versions of these energies. In Choctaw, Nana Nani Wayu means the productive mound. Another interesting translation is to bear or to bring forth. Though most tribes had to move their farms once or twice a generation due to soil exhaustion, the Choctaw never seemed to suffer from this problem and their settlement stayed constant over the years. This alone was an exceptional accomplishment. Upstate New York is one of the few places where we have quantitative yield figures for early Native American farmers. Jesuits missionaries living among the Mahakan or Mohegan tribe estimated that the tribe's fields yielded 27 bushels per acre. Early 19th century settlers in the same area who also practiced slash-and-burn agriculture and planted their corn Indian style got yields of 20 to 30 bushels per acre. Within 8 to 12 years, as soil exhaustion set in, yields would fall to 7 to 10 bushels per acre and the entire village would have to move. The Mohicans did not have rock chambers. It also bears remembering that these early farmers did not use fertilizer or crop rotation. The myth of Somerset teaching the pilgrims to put fish heads in the cornholes for fertilizer has never been substantiated by experts in the field. Our own intensive searches through the Library Museum of American Indians uh, produce only some reference to the spreading of ground-up shells on fields in the Carolinas, which would raise the calcium content of the soil, but not its real fertility. In fact, Early white observers in western New York described Indian agricultural practices in great detail without ever mentioning any use of fertilizers. In Virginia, an observer as early as 1587 noted of Indian farmers, quote, the ground they never fatten with muck or dung or anything, end quote. Somehow, the Choctaw managed to prevent their yields from falling. It is interesting that the Mohegans were not mound builders. This reminds us of the dichotomy observed in chapter 1 regarding the Olmec, the villages with the mound enjoyed a higher standard of living than the villages without one. About the time that the great mound center of Cohokia was abandoned, it was replaced by a major Mississippian center in today's Moundville, Alabama. Around 1250 AD, these 300 acre center, this 300 acre center of multiple flat top mounds mushroomed into existence like a planned community. Perhaps the most learned expert of the site, archaeologist Jim Knight of the University of Alabama Tuscaloosa, said the mounds symbolize sacred mountains. 
They were thought of as a hollow representative representing caves from which, myths say, the first peoples emerged. This is reminiscent of the beehive-shaped stone burial chambers lying hidden inside some of the Adena Mountains. From the Mississippians, this death motif was associated with the serpent as well as with fertility. There was no coincidence. This was no coincidence. Numerous traditions tell of sacred bundles of fertility and of renewal presented by deities. Quote, it was believed that through the spirits of dead relatives, the creator would help the living, end quote. This linkage may help explain the frequent burials in mounds. Other Mississippian tribes, such as the Cherokee, employed a combination of chamber and mound. Beehive-shaped rock chambers, both with and without skeletons, have been found at the bottom of the mounds. Before any mound was erected, a hut like the Mississippian temples was constructed with a fascinating array of contents. Into these huts, corpses were interred, wrapped in bark, just as the dead had been in the earlier Adena mounds. Interestingly, the Cherokee would often germinate both seeds in beds of bark before planting. We will see more possible connections between skeletons and seed fertility in Europe. Next to the Cherokee skeletons were beehive-shaped clay vaults, located as far as North Carolina. They were comparable in form and size to the smaller chambers of New England, three to five feet high. In the words of one excavator, quote, This was partially filled with rotten bark, human bones, and dark decomposed matter, end quote. We would love to know if the decomposed matter included seed. The builders occasionally crafted semicircles of these small beehive chambers clustered around what would become the center of the mound. These were people whose central mythological image was that of caves of fertility inside sacred mountains. In Mesoamerica, where the corn-centered culture emerged and eventually spread, such caves were considered the home of seeds and the source of fertility. The Mayan glyph for fertility depicts a cave with a beehive inside. Archaeologist Henry Mercer, University of Oklahoma, was brought by his Mayan guides to Ox, oh boy, Oxkahutskab, Oxkahutskab, where they entered an oblong mound by a low door to find a well-preserved rock chamber inside. At 12 by 6 feet, it was similar in size to the New England chambers. His guides led him on another 100 feet to what they called the Cave of the Serpents, with all its fertility associations. Aztec and Maya pyramids were sometimes erected over sacred caves. The largest, the Aztec Pyramid of the Sun, almost equals the Great Pyramid of Giza. It was placed squarely over a previously used oracular cave that had seen much use and had been artificially reshaped through tunnel, tunneling and wall building. The cave itself was a portion of an extinct lava flow tube, a highly magnetic mineral. It had been artificially altered into a four-leaf clover or quatrefoil shape, the seat of fertility. Mayan art frequently depicts corn foliage emerging from a quatrefoil cave. Quatrefoil chambers inside mounds are found throughout the Old World as well. 
for example, at Newgrange in Ireland. In the words of the archaeologist Doris Hayden, quote, The cave or grotto is the place where sustenance is kept. It is the depository of seeds. End quote. Items buried within the Pyramid of the Sun, dedicated to Tolak, the fertility god, included a complete skeleton of a jaguar, long the icon of plant fertility throughout Mesoamerica. One Aztec emperor, after vicious famine in 1250 AD, launched a project which required reshaping an entire hill called Tezcotzingo. At the foot of this hill was an artificial cave. Early Spanish chroniclers reported that every spring, priestess of the maize goddess named Seven Serpent would bring the best seed corn from last year's harvest up to Texcotzingo to the temple of the maize goddess and would leave it there for long enough for certain blessings. Despite the fact that most of their fields were left fallow or unplanted in any given year, these 16th century Aztec farmers grew as much corn that they comfortably supported a population density greater than that of Western Europe at the time. Such caves are in fact still considered by modern Aztec descendants, the Nahultl, to be natural home of seeds. Earth meets sky. The Hopewell did not build mounds, they also dug ditches. Since telluric currents travel primarily on the top few feet of the ground, digging even a modest ditch breaks their flow like a fallen tree in the shallow stream. The current will try to flow around the obstacle, seeking the path of least resistance. The Hopewell would leave certain patches of ground intact, creating breaks or causeways that would allow all the current blocked by the ditch to rush through it, directing the current flowing through a wide area of tight bottleneck of an intact, intact ground. Many acres were enclosed this way, like the floodplain of the Paint Creek near Killicothe, Ohio. Today, most ditches have disappeared, leveled by farmers. Others are still visible at places like Hopewell Cultural Natural Historical Park. Just inside these bottlenecks, the Hopewell often plays mounds, further concentrating the telluric currents and charging the mounds. Figure 14. As we shall see in chapter 9, a similar technique was used in England 5,000 years ago to construct causewayed enclosures and hinges. This concentration of telluric currents at these particular points would create a node or duct, bridging the natural electromagnetic energies of the atmosphere and the land. Thus, American mound builders were connecting the, energy of the energies of Mother Earth and Father Sky. Sidebar, my, the, this is just my thought here. This is not in the book. <laughs> uh, really rings, or what came to mind when I read that was as above, so below. And sidebar, back to the book. Ceremonial centers is the term archaeologists have applied to these groups of mounds, and we see no reason to argue with this name. We must remember, however, that our modern idea of ceremonial means no physical effect of any consequence. This need not have been true in the minds of the ancients. In his book, Indians of North America, Harold Driver writes, quote, The distinction between natural and supernatural 
was never sharply drawn by Indians, who tended to blend the two into a harmonious whole. A certain amount of practical science often went along with the supplication of the supernatural. For instance, Indian farmers everywhere combined practical science with religion and magic. One without the other was inconceivable. End quote. Authority Aki Holtkrantz boldly states that, quote, The chief role of American Indian religion was to help the crops grow better. End quote. And so we see everywhere connections between earth and sky, between the new world and the old, between the physical and the ceremonial. And that is all of chapter 7. Uh, of course, as always, there are figures with uh, notes to the figures and as well the end of the chapter a whole bunch of uh, references that that are dotted throughout this particular chapter Um, if you are enjoying this uh, this podcast please tell your friends about it please um, you know if you can uh, we do love support there's a support page uh, support button uh, on the anchor.fm homepage of this Um, And if you feel like supporting us, please do. We would greatly appreciate it. Uh, We would even greatly appreciate it if you're enjoying this to tell your friends about it, uh, to spread the word. Uh, I actually, this book is actually super fascinating to me. And every time I read it, uh, a chapter out of it, um, it's amazing uh, the amount of information there is about crop fertility and the role it had in ancient than just the ancient cultures um yeah it's inspiring me to start growing my own things maybe it is you too i'm not sure you can drop me an email or tweet at me about that if you want to i'd love to hear some of your thoughts as listeners to this um as always thank you so much for tuning in and we'll talk to you soon